This is from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we wrestle with, as we listen to, as we try to deeper understand your scripture. God, may the story of this first wedding in the Gospel of John, may it become real in our lives. May this story, may the actions, the words of Jesus dwell within us. We pray, Spirit, that you would be a spirit of conviction this morning, and in the places of our life where we need to grow, you would point those out to us. God, we thank you that we can gather, that we can worship, uh, that we can listen, that we can be uh, moved by your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's welcome up Russ this morning. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> How many of you are uh, headed away for Thanksgiving? Man, okay, good. How many of you, Thanksgiving's your favorite of all holidays? Oh, wow, awesome. Um, it is a uh, unique time, I think, not only to focus on gratitude, but to be with family, to be with friends, to spend time together with people, a meaningful relationship. And uh, I want us uh, just to pray um, before we get started that uh, God would give us safety as we travel and uh, that he would allow the time to be really great. The second thing I want to pray for is uh, I have not been feeling great all week. You might even be able to hear it in my voice. Uh, and so my talk even this morning, it was written on generous amounts of NyQuil. So I don't know if it's even going to make sense. Uh, I hope that it will. And so I'm going to just pray that God will uh, speak uh, through his word to us this morning uh, in spite of me and uh, might uh, encourage us in the word. All right, let's pray. Uh, God, we come to you because we need you. We come to you because you are the source of life, um, that any and everything that we can accomplish uh, is owed to you. Uh, I pray that you would give us uh, an amazing time this week with family, with friends, with community, 
with each other in this community, <coughs> that we would uh, be able to be people of deep gratitude, people of hospitality, people who are generous with one another, and uh, that that might be a sign uh, and a foretaste of your kingdom come and your will be done in heaven. And I pray that uh, we would sense and see that this week. I pray that you would give us safety as we travel or as people travel to us and uh, that it might be a really rich time. I also pray that this morning uh, would equally be rich, that you would speak to us, that you would uh, give me energy and uh, allow your word to come forth and uh, make sense to us. This morning we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> So this morning, I want to start with a uh, bit of a quote that I think will give some context into where we're going. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 2, and uh, I'd like you to turn there because I'm going to point a few things out uh, in a little bit that uh, being able to glance down at the text and see one idea right after the next will be helpful. So our quote this morning starts off by saying this. Through my hermeneutical lens, the Bible is the account of the ancient conversation initiated, inspired, and guided by God with and among humanity. There's a conversation where various sometimes harmonious and sometimes discordant human voices contribute to the gradually growing picture of the character of Yahweh, fully revealed only in Jesus. But it is also a conversation that rather than ending with the finalization of the canon, continues beyond it, involving all of those who give themselves to Christ's ongoing redemptive movement. Christianity is not about a book, but about a person who is the word of God made flesh. And we have in our text this morning a very strong picture of the word of God made flesh. It is this beautiful story. And uh, in the gospel of John, uh, John is writing and he comes at it from a really, really unique perspective. So one of the things that's so important for us to understand about the word of God is that not only is it is the inspired word of God, but it also has this incredibly human dynamic to it. So this human element allows the writers to be really creative and really precise and really um, detailed in the way they communicate the story. So what I mean by that is they're really, really strategic. They're trying to, in their rendering of the gospel or the good news, uh, their particular perspective, they're trying to hone in and help us as readers to get it, to understand what's most important to them. That's why each of the gospel writers comes at it from a slightly different perspective because they're all trying to communicate something a little bit different. And what they do is they often arrange or rearrange the text and rearrange the stories in the text to communicate something in precise ways. And the reason I bring this up is because sometimes the way that the text is arranged or the way that it is uh, ordered is maybe as important or sometimes maybe more important than the actual words of the text. So when you're doing biblical interpretation, when you're trying to understand what the text is communicating, it's not always what is said that is most important, 
Sometimes it's what's not said that's most important. Sometimes it's what happens in between the lines of text that actually carry the most meaning. And our story this morning in John chapter 2, the one that Kevin read a little bit earlier, is, in my opinion, most powerful because of what is not said or most powerful because of what is between the lines of text. Um, If you're not quite understanding that illustration, it's not necessarily what your wife says to you, it's the face she has when she says it that like then gives you these ways of understanding what she's really communicating. Make sense? Or we can same with our kids. My, my daughter will sometimes say things to me and I'm like, you did not mean that the way you said that. And I can tell because I see it in between the words. Make sense? Okay. So <clears throat> our story this morning is really most powerful because of, I think, what is between the lines. Now, you have, in order for us to get to John chapter 2, if you have your Bible open, I want you to glance at the very first part of John chapter 1, because I think it gets us to where we're going. There is this key line that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's this powerful verse. Many people have memorized it and know it. He's describing who Jesus is, right? Now, as a first century listener to the text, uh, obviously we're in an oral tradition, and so the the word would be communicated. And as you would hear, in the beginning, what would come to your mind? Tell me, what would come to your mind as you're listening to it, maybe for the first time? Creation, good. What else? What's the next word? So there's two primary things the listener would have been thinking. One would be creation, absolutely. The second one, in the beginning, if you go to Genesis, in the beginning, what's the next word? God. So a lot of times when writers in the New Testament were trying to make a point, it was the word that they didn't say that caught the reader's attention. Because if you're sitting there as the first time listening to it, and someone got up and started to read the Gospel of John, and they said, in the beginning, you're going, oh, I know this. I've heard this before. Yeah, in the beginning, God. But in this time, it would be in the beginning was the word. And you're like, whoa, hold on. And so you'd instantly be thinking about two things. You'd be thinking about this, what we're about to hear, is about Yahweh. It's about God. So it's important. It's significant. But you'd also be thinking about what we're about to hear has to do with creation. There's something significant about creation that this writer is talking about. Now, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, you'll notice a lot of words about creation. You'll notice light and dark, things being made, things being created. And it would have reminded all of the readers that something is going on about creation. Now, as most of us know, when we get to the the book of Genesis, if we flash back there for a moment, you don't have to turn there, but just think about it. We, most of us know that there is the story of creation, and at the beginning there is this poem that is illustrating or narrating what it means for the world to be created by God. And in this poem, over a seven-day sequence, what the author is doing is he's reminding everyone that God forms certain things and he fills certain things. And what I mean by that is that he forms the sky, and then later on a corresponding day, he fills the sky with birds and things that fly. Then he forms the sea, and then on a corresponding day, he fills the sea with fish that swim and teem 
the scriptures say. He also forms the land, and then he fills the land, right, with animals and with humans. And so there's this rhythm, and in this rhythm, all of it is leading to the seventh day, the most important day, the day that God rested. Now, if we uh, are looking at uh, this particular example, we, we know that it is building towards something, right? And what it's building toward, the poem, is it's building toward that seventh day because the entire poem is centered around this idea that there is a temple ceremony or a tabernacle ceremony. And so it's designed to make us think about that seventh day. And that seventh day, according to the way a tabernacle would be set up, would be the day in which God comes and dwells in the tabernacle. That's why it was the most important day because the Spirit of God would descend in some unique way to be among us, to be with us, right? We're all tracking? So you have this, uh, this idea that the writer is trying to get us to see, and it's not that God rested. It's not that he was tired, not that he needed a break. It's really what the writer is trying to get us to see is that God was going to dwell with us, to come be with us, to be fully present with us, right? Now, on the seventh day, God would come and dwell or rest in the tabernacle. And so, we, he tabernacled or tabernacles with us. Does that make sense? We're all tracking. So, it's really this picture that God would come to the earth he created, to which we all are a part of, and he says, this now is my tabernacle. I'm with you. I'm present with you. Okay? Now, hold that thought for a moment that he tabernacles with us. We jump back to John. So we left Genesis, we're back in John. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, probably the second most significant uh, verse in there that we often remember. And it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, <clears throat> I know we have a lot of Greek scholars in the room, so the Greek word for dwelt is what? I'll give you a hint, tabernacled. Now, why is this interesting? John is making a point, right? So he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and they start to think about seven days, and they start to think about creation, and they start to think about God dwelling with us or tabernacling with us. Verse 14, right? Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us, came and was present with us. So it's referring back and saying, Jesus, look, is God among us? And there's this movement in the text that is really, really powerful, highlighting something so significant. Now, I want you to hold that thought for a moment. Okay, we're holding a couple different thoughts. And I want you to think about this <clears throat> for a second. John is big into numbers. John, for some reason, likes numbers. Okay. So you should be thinking about, and the reader should be thinking about, the seven days of creation, right? So we have this number seven in our minds. Now, when you get to the Gospel of John, John has these I am statements, right? Many of you are familiar with them because we've gone through them each as we've gone in reverse through the Gospel of John. Now, the I am statements, he says, I am, for instance, um, the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world, and on and on. How many... Uh, I am statements do you think he makes throughout the Gospel of John? Seven. Great. Seven I am statements. 
that are made through the Gospel of John. But John isn't just into I am statements. He's also into signs, okay? So he says this at the end of the Gospel of John. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, being the signs, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So, question number one, why are the signs written? So that you may believe, right? The signs are very specific. I'm writing these so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that you would believe that he is dwelling among us, that you would believe that he has come to tabernacle, okay? Great. Now, all the signs are the miracles throughout the Gospel of John that are highlighted in this text. Question, how many are there? Seven. Great job, okay? So we're tracking. John is into numbers, right? Now, we, our text for this morning, John chapter 2, uh, is the first sign of the seven signs, okay? Now, I want you to look in the text because something interesting is happening here. So you have the introduction to the book. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Introduction. You move into this next little section, and John the Baptist, I'll summarize his words here, says Jesus is the dude, okay? He's the guy we've been waiting for. He is the one, okay? you got to make sure you pay attention to him, okay? Then... If you look in your text, just grab it here and uh, hold it up. You're going to notice in uh, verse 29, it says something. That next little section, it says, and the next day, right? Then if you jump to the next little section in your text, verse 35, and the next day. And then you jump to verse 43, and then you see, and the next day. And then you jump again to our section, and it says, on the third day, Okay? So right now we're in chapter 2, verse 1. Prior to chapter 2, verse 1, <clears throat> you noticed that there were some days. Go ahead and put that next slide up. So day 1 took place in that first section. Day 2, Jesus' baptism. Day 3, the next little section where it says in the next day. Day 4, in the next day. Now we come to our section, chapter 2, verse 1, and it says on the third day. So, mathematicians, what day then is it numerically when we start chapter 2, verse 1? The seventh. Good job. Okay, four days plus the three days, we're on the seventh day. Seventh day. Now, on the seventh day of creation, there is a tradition that there was a what? Wedding. So you have this really unique thing going on in the text because now we find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 1, at a wedding, right? And so the seventh day is a wedding. The seventh day is also a day where God reveals himself. The seventh day is also a day where he comes and dwells among us. You have all these layers of things happening and John hasn't said any of them, right? Thing after thing after thing pointing to Jesus. Thing after thing after thing pointing to him being the one. Now, here's the other thing. Keep that thought in your mind for a moment because what happens with seventh days is they're intended to lead us or to tell us about the eighth day. Now, the seventh day was always important. It was the day of rest. It was the day of dwelling. It was the day of revealing. It's the day he makes himself known. But the eighth day was unique because it was the start of something new. It was the start of the new creation. 
So when you have the days of the creation, the seventh he dwells among us, the eighth is all things are new. Now we begin. It's the start. It's us being together and dwelling and ruling and reigning together, right? So you have this really unique movement in the text. The eighth day then became known as the new beginning. The eighth day became known as the number of rebirth, the number of renewal, the number of starting over, the number of being born again or being made new or being a new creation. And you see this language throughout the rest of the New Testament. So we find ourselves at the first sign, the wedding. And the wedding is the first of seven. So you have the water to wine. You have the healing of the official son. You have the healing of the paralyzed man. You see them up there. And there's seven. And they culminate with this one where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the seventh sign, again, is the significance of it is because it's leading us to the eighth sign. And each sign is an inbreaking of the kingdom. And what I mean by that is a little moment of time in which heaven is made fully present on earth. And T. Wright says this, the whole point of signs or of these miracles is that they are moments when heaven and earth intersect with each other. That's what the Jews believed happened in the temple. The point is not that they are stories which couldn't have happened in real life, but which point away from earth to a heavenly reality. The idea is that there's something unique happening with Jesus, and they're all pointing us to the eighth sign. Now, the eighth sign would have taken place on the first day of the week, correct? So you have all this movement, the eighth sign. Now, if you fast forward, you don't have to turn there, but if we go back to where we started this whole series, we get back to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, there's this uh, unique little moment that happens because John, all the way through the rest of the book, has never once used a day of the week. He's never said this is the first day, the next day, or anything like that. We come to John chapter 20, and it says this. Now, on the first day of the week, the reader again would go, wait a second, you're pointing something out. You said next day, next day, next day, next day, third day. Now, for the first time, you come back to it and you say, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. What had happened? The eighth sign. What had happened the first day of the week, right? So you have this moment when the resurrection makes sense to everyone because it's the eighth sign. It's the start of the new creation. It's the beginning. Everything that was is no longer the same. It's been renewed. It's changed because of this moment. And then the text, because it's like, if you didn't quite get this yet, let me point out one more thing. It says this in verse 15. So Jesus said to her, Mary's kind of weeping. She's wandering around like, what have they done with Jesus? And she, he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And the text says, supposing him, Jesus, to be the gardener. Hint, 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 right? The garden, the original garden. You have this gardener who's tending, who's caring, who's taking care of everyone in the garden. 
and she supposes Jesus to be the gardener, and then he says, Mary. And when she hears his name, she's like, it's you. It's the one I've waited for my whole life. You have this amazing new creation, this new beginning that takes place because it's the eighth day. See, on Good Friday, he said it is finished. On Holy Saturday, his body rested in the tomb. And then on the eighth day, the first day of the week, sin and death is defeated. The gates of hell are shattered. The graves release the captives. And the Son of God rises from the dead. And the old creation begins passing away. And a new creation breaks into the present world. That is our reality. That is the world in which we live. That is the truth that we believe. And it is the eighth day that is so important because it's the day that God begins creating again. And on that day, from that moment forward, the kingdom is in the process of coming. God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that the eighth day and every day for us, we are invited into the creative process of being a part of God's renewing work of the kingdom of God here on earth. That means the eighth day and every day that we are empowered to go out and spread the good news of Jesus means that the eighth day and every day that we, the body of Christ, the church, are called to remind the world that the resurrection was just the beginning of the story. That it wasn't the end, but rather the beginning because the eighth day is the day God is creating his kingdom come. So what does any of this have to do with the wedding? What is the point of the wedding? How did we get here? And what are these numbers all about? And what is the point? The point is the eighth day. The point is Jesus, right? But just so you don't walk away going, well, we didn't even talk about the wedding. Uh, let me give you a couple ideas from the wedding text. I think here's what we can take away based on what we've just heard. Here's what the wedding is telling us. First idea is this. John's gospel is all about the marriage of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. One thing you can take away from the wedding is that the final purpose of God in creation is not the separation of heaven and earth, but their wonderful combining he is making it new again. And the Christian hope is that the new has begun now. We're not waiting for it, right? It isn't a someday. Someday I'll, I'll, I'll leave this whole world behind. It is a now. It is a present reality. And it is one that requires this second step to be known, that Jesus is not interested in purity but in transformation. Jesus is not interested in purity but in transformation. So here's what happens in the story. You realize that there's this wedding feast that's going on. Something really incredible is taking place. They are probably getting pretty close to the seventh day of the ceremony. And as they're coming to that day, they're about to run out of wine. And Jesus' mother comes and says, Jesus, they're about out of wine, which would have been a major social faux pas. Not just like, a, oh, that's a bit embarrassing, or oh, you didn't have enough cake for the reception but a kind of like shame on you and all your family that you did not provide for us as we came to celebrate you. 
it would have been a, probably a stain on their life for the rest of their life. They would have been shamed in the culture. And you have this incredible moment taking place, and Jesus was told, hey, they've got a problem, and Mary said, can you take care of it? Jesus, there's a lot of debate about what's going on here. Does he say, like, yo, mom, just knock it off. I'm not doing that right now. Or does he say, or like, is it a little silent conversation between the two of them that John overhears where he's like, man, does it, do I really have to do this now? Is this my time? And then he concludes it is his time to do something. And in that moment, she says to the servants, hey, do whatever Jesus tells you. And Jesus comes and says there's these jars for purification, these huge jars. And they were to make you ceremonially clean. If you had been in some way unclean, these would clean you and wash you, and your sin would be removed, and you'd be back to zero, right? So like we at zero, then we sin some, and then we were cleaned and back to zero. And then we sin some and we're clean, and we're back to zero. And what Jesus does is he has them filled with water, but by changing it to wine, he's like the equation's different now. So no longer is it a, hey, we were at zero, we sinned, and then now we're made clean, and we're at zero again. What he's getting at is there's a total transformation that's taking place. That you were once old creature, creature creation, and now you are made new. What was, was, once was is now gone. You are a new creation in Christ. That everything that was before is no longer, and you have been adopted into the family, that all the rights and privileges come with it. It is not about purity, it's about transformation. Jesus is not saying in that moment, like, hey, just come and make yourself right with me again. No, he's saying, come and I'll give you a new self. You're completely clean, completely clean from now on. There's no come back and wash again. It's over and done with. That's an incredibly powerful idea. Because God is not interested in just bringing you back to zero sum. He's interested in totally transforming your life altogether. The third thing I think the wedding tells us is that our, this wedding has begun, but it requires our participation, right? The new creation is far from complete. It requires us to be active participants in God's work, practicing social justice and nonviolence and forgiveness. We have a role to play in the inbreaking of the kingdom. We're not intended to just be someone sitting around waiting for the day to come that we will somehow be reunited with Christ and all that is wrong with the world will then be made right. We are to be active participants in that action now. And that's what this wedding story is getting at. Anderson says this, too often I fear when the church attempts to make disciples out of Christians by urging them to follow Christ, what is really intended is to mobilize the members of the church to take up church-related ministries and to develop their own interior religious life. A disciple of Christ is not intended to be a little Messiah, but to participate in the messianic mission to extend the kingdom into every crevice and corner of the world. That is your calling as a disciple. It's not to sit around and try to be holy and to sit around and wait and just do things within the church. It is to be on mission in the world continually. 
to allow his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And transformation only comes when all of us follow Mary's invitation, which is this, do whatever he tells you. That's what she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. The point is being made, church, us, you, me, do whatever he tells you. Obey, follow. That is what it means to participate in the kingdom. Final idea out of the story of the marriage, the water to wine. Assurance that you matter. Let's uh, go back one or just clear that out for a second. Okay. Assurance that you matter. Here's what I want to say before we get to the quote that I want to close with. You have a unique moment, I think, in the text because Jesus uh, may have had other plans in mind. He may not have intended to start his first sign with turning water into wine. He may not have intended uh, to use that as an illustration of his glory. In fact, the text says he made his glory revealed or known in that moment. It was like there was no hiding it from that point on. And he had it remained hidden, in a sense, for 30 years up till that moment. And um, he has this little interaction with his mom like, hey, I know you might be waiting for a moment, but I think your time is now. And Jesus, we don't know, did he change his mind in that moment? Did he decide he was going to and then now he is? Or, who knows exactly, right? We don't know how it went, and we don't know what is between those lines of text. But we do know this, that he was so concerned about that couple. He was so concerned about their shame, so concerned about their situation, so intimately involved with their life, that not only was he invited to the party, but he guaranteed that the party continued. Not only did he guarantee the party continued with average wine, he did it with even better wine. He, he was all about saying this party is going to be the best party that we can give, and I'm going to save the best for last, and something significant is happening in this moment. That should give us a deep, deep assurance that he cares for your moments too, that he is as invested and is deeply aware of your situation, and he does not long for your shame but longs for the celebration. He wants to inbreak into those moments and reveal the kingdom. He wants your life to be a life that all throughout the day as you move, you realize like oh, there's a moment of God inbreaking again. This is a moment of God tabernacling with us. This is a moment of him indwelling someone. This is the moment of, you see, this is what's happening in the text. Let me end with this quote. And he writes says, and it's all to rescue this poor couple from social embarrassment. An embarrassment which reflects the blushing of Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden, a couple gone wrong, a fault symbolized by wrong eating, now being put right by redemption symbolized by right drinking. Jesus' changing of water into wine is designed to say not just to this couple whose day is about to be ruined, but to the wild, wider world, you, to you and me, to the whole creation, it's all right. It's going to be okay. And since all of us need to hear that word quite often, not least within our homes, 
in our marriages. We need to turn this story itself into a good, strong drink and inhale its bouquet, roll it around in our mouths, savor its aftertaste. The multiple resonances of good news, of gospel, of glory, the glory of God in the face of a surprised and relieved husband and wife. There is something about this wedding, this wine, and it speaks of resurrection, a new creation, a new beginning, and a new hope. Let's pray. God, we know a lot is going on in the text, far more than we're even able to um, to describe or to pull out or to explain. You have all these overlapping layers of intricacy. You have numbers overlapping with stories, overlapping with history, overlapping with the way readers would have heard it, overlapping uh, with, with, with moments of tension and excitement and energy, and all of them are pointing to this eighth day, and they're all pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. And all of that is pointing to our role in it, that you have invited us to new wine, you've invited us to new creation, you've invited us to fresh beginnings, and you've invited us to participation. You are saying that you have come to tabernacle with us, you've come to be married to us, you've come to be in relationship with us, and not only that, that when we are in relationship, we've got some work to do. We've got some things to participate in. And so, God, may we live into those things. May we embody what it means. And may this week we see signs all over of you in breaking, of you tabernacling, of you being close to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.